Hello and welcome to the uh, Viewfinder Vikings podcast. This is episode number eight. And today uh, we have a very special guest, a fellow podcaster, uh, Mr. James Lee. How are you? Excellent, Sven. How are you doing? I'm good. Uh, I heard you were building some darkroom uh, yes. stuff in your basement today. Am, uh, How's I that am going? Sitting- I'm sitting in my my current dungeon, soon to be dark room, um, and uh, it's going slowly but surely. I, um, you know, as I map this whole project out in my head, the completion date seems a lot shorter than the actual real completion date. Um, <laughs> so it is moving along, though. I, I got it to a point where I can do some printing um, in a makeshift kind of way. I have yet to uh, install some plumbing and a sink, so. I have to bring water from uh, the upstairs part of the house if I want to do some printing. Um, but uh, I think in the next uh, few days I'll have my sink installed and um, all the electrical run and uh, the rest of the walls uh, framed up. So so hopefully, uh, I'm hoping by um, shortly after Christmas, early January, it'll be in a pretty finished state where, I get, where I'll be proud enough to show some pictures of it. <laughs> So then, after Christmas holiday, you you will be you will have a ton of negatives to to print. Yes, well, you know, here in in Canada, we always um, we don't shoot very much from uh, December through March because the weather is not very good, and unless you like a lot of gray skies and uh, snowy uh, snowy ground, um, I love that. Yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, hey, well, <laughs> the Norwegians and the and the Canadians have a lot in common weather wise. So uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, so you know, we we tend to print a lot more uh, in the winter time here, and uh, shoot more in the warmer warmer months. But um, uh, there are some there are some very nice winter landscapes to shoot uh, in this area as well too. So we have uh, um, uh, some nice forested areas, and uh, we have a, a lovely escarpment that runs uh, through this area. So it's it's, it's quite lovely to. Uh, uh, to shoot, but um, I am trying to get ready and, and do some printing. I uh, I made a print, gosh, uh, about two weeks ago, uh, and it was the first print that I had done since the '90s in the dark. <laughs> so uh, uh, everyone seemed to like it. Um, cool. So it seems like I haven't lost my touch in the dark room, which is a good thing. And uh, it was an infrared print, and infrared can be a little bit of a Whoa. pain in the- to uh, to print. So. Hmm. Well, I can actually, I can actually beat you there because when I, last year when I made my darkroom and did my first print, that was the first print I've ever done. Was so, an infrared? No. Oh, 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 oh yeah. In your life? Oh, oh yeah. Because I'm, I'm just, I'm just about that age where I missed the, the uh, film, or I wasn't old enough to be very interested in photography. Uh, right. And then when I got the interest of photography it was around 2009 10 right the it was never an option to to shoot film i didn't oh, really? even i didn't well, didn't even yes. know that, that it still existed so well it's funny I, I it's an interesting i i was in the uh the home center today to buy some building materials and uh, one of the young kids that was helping me at the store asked what i was building and i said oh i'm building a dark room and he said what's a dark room <laughs> Well, it's, so like, it's it's a kind of panic room for. <laughs> <laughs> it's a place you don't want to go. It's very. Um, <coughs> so um, I was uh, instantly reminded of how old I was. Yeah, 
So I explained it all to him, and I said film photography, and he still looked at me, had no idea what I was talking about when I said film photography. So, you know, I think for us as uh, as film enthusiasts and and promoters of uh, of analog photography, we have some work to do still with the. Uh, informing and educating some of the younger folks uh, about about how wonderful this art form can be so yeah yeah that's i i see that too uh when whenever art is uh, the subject uh, photography is not in the in the mix it's always it's always painting or sculpting or uh, some sort of dance or whatever but photography has just lost it whenever when when digital came and because uh, because when you see a photograph today of, of a, a digital photograph the discussion is not about uh, mood or or what it means to you or whatever it's about how did he do that how yeah for your what were your settings that that is my pet yeah. peeve as a photographer um, is what were your settings well I can tell you what I was thinking I have no idea what my camera was set at nor do I care <laughs> and and uh, also how uh, what what kind of high pass uh, oh sure stuff did you do and I, I man I even forgot about the names I you know like oh. the HDR the high dynamic range uh, photography which is um You know, I, I shoot both film and digital, so I am uh, agnostic when it comes to photography. I, I, I don't favor one over the other. Well, mm -hmm. I shouldn't say that. I do favor film because of the experiential nature of film. And, and uh, it is, you know, I, I fell in love with photography because of being in the darkroom. But, um, but you know, to me, I, I like to make sure that, you know what, it's it's no matter what medium you choose to make a photograph with, you're still making a photograph and whether or not that's digital or film um, or say even your iPhone, God forbid, um, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, it doesn't, it doesn't bother me. Um, I do think that um, uh, digital has, you know, been somewhat of a detriment to the art form in that it's kind of uh, uh, diluted it. Um, uh, if you, in the sense that everyone Uh, goes out and buys themselves a, a lovely, expensive digital camera, and all of a sudden considers themselves a professional photographer. Um, you know, doesn't really learn the uh, the art um, or the 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 trade of photography, if you will. Um, and then they they uh, you know try to correct exposure and composition errors. You know, through uh, excessive and abusive use of Photoshop, yeah. and I find that you know high dynamic range photography is all it tends to be so overdone and it, it you know it's painful for me to to look at it because you know I know how beautiful that scene really is and and you know we don't we don't see the world in high dynamic range you know we see it um in the same sort of uh um uh sharpness or uh vibrance as we would uh with film you know and uh, I think when you overdo that too much you kind of it it, it doesn't become real anymore And yeah. to me, I, you know, photography, my definition of photography is, is a real, uh, is a, is a real depiction, uh, or sorry, a depiction of what reality really is enhanced reality, but not too much. Right. And so your, your eyes are probably in your twenties and thirties, your eyes are probably like, like a tea grain film. And then as you grow older, your eyes are more like, more like a foam pan. <laughs> expired 20 years 
Oh God, yeah, my <laughs> my eyes these days are like Fomer four hundred, which isn't very good. <laughs> hey, I love that film. Oh, but, you're, yeah, you and I are going to disagree on that one. <laughs> well, uh, that's uh, that's a whole topic of its own, but I, oh, it's sure. it's so strange. I I I talked to John Gregory a little bit about that because um, if I see um, someone shooting, let's say. Uh, Tri-X mm -hmm. pushed to 1600 developed in this and that for this yeah. and that time if I try to copy that same uh, the, the same recipe mm -hmm. the, the result will be different because of our uh, type of light in Norway because mm -hmm. of the cold or heat missing heat and uh, because of the subjects that I shoot and compare to that YouTube video I saw that was shot downtown uh, New York. And and so for me, the Fomopan is beautiful whenever I develop it the way I do it. But I can certainly see that some some people are st really struggling with their, I, I, with I their struggle. temperature or whatever developer. Yeah. I, I see what they are talking about. and and uh, But I don't know how that how that affects the film, but I know it just does somehow. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. Uh, you know, I mean, I think it's uh, a lot of times too, you, people don't always articulate how much post-processing they're doing on their negatives as well. Yeah, true. You know, true. a lot of people scan um, and then they, you know, essentially you've got a digital negative after you've scanned it. Um, and, you know, even, even uh, you know, like there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's even more data. If you, even if, you, if you're scanning in particular a medium format negative, you know, you're almost getting, uh, uh, you know, 200, it's like a 200 megapixel um, image, right? Mm -hmm. uh, if, you know, just, just by sheer uh, area of the, of the negative, you have a lot of data there. So you can really manipulate those images. Um, it's a, and it's a lot easier, I think, to do it um, with a scanner and Photoshop and Lightroom than it is to do it in the darkroom. And let's face it, the majority of film photographers today are not actually doing anything in the darkroom, which isn't a bad thing. Uh, but they are, um, you know, they're manipulating a lot of their images uh, in Photoshop. So it's hard to establish any like real sort of a control. If you will, like if you you know comparing you know what some how someone processed a particular negative versus how you processed it, if you were to perhaps look at the you know just the bare negatives, that probably give you a truer depiction. And you probably I would I would hazard to guess would um, find that the negatives are probably fairly fairly closely matched. True, because ultimately, if you're using the same chemicals and you're doing the same process, it's the same chemical reaction. Um, you know. If obviously, if uh, lighting situations are different, that sort of thing. Uh, I mean, there's so many variables: uh, yeah. temperature, water quality. <clears throat> um, you know, I, I have uh, where I live. Uh, we have a lot of uh, minerals in the water here, so I get a lot of hard water. And um, you know, if I'm a little bit lazy or I overlook, uh, especially with my color processing, if I use the water out of the tap, um, I sometimes uh, see a lot of underexposed. Uh, uh, negatives and I think uh, the hard water does something with the chemical reaction with the dyes um, and then you know the dyes they just they don't um, mm -hmm. uh, they don't develop properly or the the silver doesn't adhere properly to the dye or whatever uh, you know whatever coupling um, uh, agent or whatever 
is somewhat depleted with the harder water or, or the, you know, just doesn't work quite as well. If I use distilled water, you know, I find I get the results that I'm expecting. So, yeah, that's that's also one of the the variables. And when you add them all up, it, there's probably 20, 25 of them. And oh, yeah. So it's very hard to copy. Like if you have a photographer when you when you first start out and you have a photographer and you notice that he shoots 400H or... And and then you grab a few rolls and then you try for yourself and that's sort of what I did in in the, in the color when I started with color for the first time I I tried 400H and and uh, I didn't think about like my darkroom is also in the basement so that's where I develop and uh, it, it it was probably four or five uh, degrees below uh, 68 right uh, and I was supposed to keep the temperature at uh, ninety-eight or what? Hundred and four? Is it? No. Uh, oh, for uh, this was for color you were doing. Yeah. Yeah. So generally, color is one hundred and four, hundred and five Fahrenheit. Yeah. Yeah. Thirty-nine to forty degrees Celsius. I usually i i develop at forty degrees Celsius, both E six and C forty one, and that seems to work well for me. Um. Uh. I. I. I honestly don't know if this is true or just anecdotal, but um. <coughs> I was I was told I don't know if I heard this on maybe the film photography project podcast um, that uh, when the water temperature is cooler uh, you generally end up with a cooler um, temperature uh, color cast on your negatives and if it's with warmer you end up with warmer um, I, I've actually in my experience I've noticed you know it seems to be pretty consistent that it does that. And I generally like, um, well, I like two things. One, I like my images to be a touch on the warm side. Um, and I also don't like to spend time developing films. So the hotter the water, the faster the development time. So, so I, I tend to max out the temperature if I can. And I use a Jobo uh, processor uh, so uh, I, I'm, I can get my my temperatures pretty cheater. Yeah, yeah, I am a <laughs> cheater. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm not a cheater. I'm just smart. <laughs> Well, I I I was thinking about that when I did color because I used the um, the Techni color or what was it? Um, no, the the company that's in trouble right now. Oh, uh, Technol. Uh, yeah. Technol. And yeah. and that has pretty pretty okay uh, color developing times, but the the Blix times is just. Uh, for every four rolls, you 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 start up with I think it's f- four minutes blicks, and then it's six, and then it's ten, and then it's fifteen. So from roll for so for, for the depleting, yeah, for for the from yeah. roll fifteen on out or sixteen on out, it's fifteen minutes, and so the development time stops at four. That's the maximum for fifteen or whatever. So the temperature doesn't drop all that much with the color developer but the blix probably and so i was also thinking about that what what happens if the color developer stays at the correct temperature but the blix drops in during those 15 minutes so yeah it's uh well well, okay so when you're developing by hand right yeah like tank so um do you do you when you're not agitating do you put the tank like into in, into the water bath? No, I did that with the when I did E6 because uh, it it was uh, much uh, 
It had to oh. be a tighter temperature control, but I I, I, I skipped that with with the yeah. with the color negative. So I just I just have like the you know when you know before I got my Jobo, I um I just had a couple of uh, uh, like wash bins or whatever small small dishwashing bins that you can you can find at discount store or whatever, and so I would keep a temperature uh, uh, a tempering bath. So I when I when my tanks were not being agitated, they were sitting in the water bath. Uh, just like how you're doing your E6, I do the same for C41. Um, now, you know, that said, you know, Blix is not as critical, obviously, as your developer, uh, temperature-wise. Um, so, you know, the, I think you have a little bit more flexibility with the Blix. But, um, uh, yeah, it would definitely, as the temperature drops, it would become less reactive, right? So you would have to increase time um, if you're if you're not maintaining temperature. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's pretty interesting to to think about how many variables uh, that change from the blog post I saw you shooting 400 H and from me going out shooting. Uh, it, it just just to, to the the difference between let's say six by nine and six by six can be a massive difference in terms of the look. Oh sure, yeah, absolutely. So, I'm- you change the aspect ratio of any image, you, you change the composition. But you know all of this variation and uh, and and good and bad luck and chance and all of this stuff. You know, to me, like that's the magic of film. Yeah. You know, it's almost like uh, uh, the universe kind of has to. Um, uh, everything's gonna have to be in alignment some days for things to work, and um, and that's the magic of it. And and you know. You you never really can reproduce the same image twice with film, um, and, you know. Even in printing, you know, there's always variations. Like you you can record all your all your contrast settings and exposure times and f-stops in your enlarger, <coughs> but there's always going to be a slight variation in any silver gelatin print, which is which is really really cool because I, from my perspective anyway, because every piece becomes unique with film. You know, so people always ask me, well, why do you prefer um, shooting film over digital, and it's like, and I said, well, <clears throat> it's not so much that I prefer; it's just what I'm looking for, and I'm looking for the experiential nature, the unpredictable nature of film. Um, and <clears throat> to me, that is what um, those are essential ingredients in creating art, right? Like art to me, and and photography, I I, I think they're synonymous. Is a uh, is a is a fortunate comedy of errors, you know, where you get Either you you get a beautiful result, whether or not you were expecting that result. You know, um, right. if you put if you put in the effort, you, you may not expect you may not get the thing you're ex- you've expected. Doesn't make it good or bad. You know, unexpected is just unexpected. If the outcome is pleasing um, and teaches you something, well, that's the beauty of film photography and art, right? Yeah, and I and I also think that there probably are cameras, digital cameras out there that would give me the same uh experience in the field and uh if if you go big enough uh if you have like a hundred thousand dollar medium for my camera i probably would just take four or five shots when i'm out i wouldn't do 400 (laughs) and uh so that could sort of give me the same vibes and then uh i would probably handle uh, the files the same way I do my negatives, 
uh, with very little adjustments. But the problem is that what I what I'm what I don't get to experience is the the very tactile, the um, the loading, yeah. the film, the um, yeah, the developing, the, the hands-on everything, and, and it's interesting what you talk about um, the uh, not not two prints can be identical, and especially if if you're like me and and your darkroom is pretty cold, so um, the uh, the developer will will probably drop in temperature, and and so the difference between one print and the other uh, can be. Uh, uh, huge. <laughs> sure. and I mean, you you you, you can, don't you'll never agitate that 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 paper the same way, anyways, in the tray too. So there's so many little things that you know. Yeah, can you imagine if if the if the temperature of your mouse determined how you your your strokes would be with the dodge and burn tool in Photoshop or yeah or, or something like that? Yeah. Just it it would. It would, it would that's a good idea actually we should we should do something about that <laughs> or 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 a pulse uh a well, I, yeah for my digital work i use a an intuos um uh, uh retouching pad right and and it changes the intensity based on pressure on the pen okay so if you're crazy angry you you yeah. edit one way and the <laughs> exactly <laughs> That's cool. Okay, so now we we've talked around about thirty minutes, and and it seems suitable to to introduce you to the to the audience, uh, or yeah. or you can do it. Maybe that's that's yeah, even well, yeah. even better. Or uh, and yeah. and also while you're at it, uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about the uh, the podcast, the classic camera revival, sure. uh, the the format. Uh, how did it start? Um, yeah. And maybe a little bit about what what a typical episode is is all about for you guys sure I, absolutely so a little bit about me i um i uh, got uh started in photography in the mid 80s um my uh my dad had a zenith e 35 millimeter slr uh when i was a young kid and then i uh i i the first memory i have is we we did a family trip to the zoo and i and my dad let me take the camera so i that's when i fell in love with uh with the camera and taking photography was um was when i think it was about uh 11 or 12 years old in the early 80s and so i'd always have this camera with me and i'd always take pictures and uh you know i always found that when my family were taking photos with like snapshots and things like that they they would never fill the frame with the people there was everything was just taken at a distance so i didn't like that and i didn't realize that i just i guess i had this sort of natural um, ability to compose uh, people in pictures uh, fairly well or, or in a pleasing way and then I just kept on going with that and I started taking some <clears throat> photography courses uh, in high school in the late 80s and and um, I fell in love with it I uh, when I when I finally got to do a darkroom print and I saw the image appear on the paper and that's when I, I was hooked I was mm -hmm. like oh this this is terrific so um <clears throat> You know, since then, so uh, fast forward a little bit, I um, I started shooting some weddings on the side as a, a sort of a part-time job when I was a teenager, and I I did that um, partway through university and and used the money to obviously you know pay some student bills and and probably you know drink a little too much beer and 
and engage in some some activities that we probably that's probably a different podcast if you want to talk about those when I was younger. Uh, and uh, you know, I took a little break for a while, um, and I, I stopped shooting probably for about seven or eight years, and then um, uh, fast forward like late nineties, early two thousands. Um, <clears throat> I decided, you know what, I I need a camera. My wife and I were we had planned a lovely vacation to Hawaii, and I said, oh, I want a nice camera to take pictures. It's going to be beautiful there. So I went to the local camera shop, and they and they sold me a uh, a digital camera, a point and shoot. It was a con, uh, a Canon G one, uh, which was um, quite you know advanced for the time, and it was close to a thousand dollars. And that was my gosh, well close to twenty years ago. So a thousand dollars twenty years ago was wow. a fair money. Um, so I bought this camera and I loved it. And then I decided to buy a, a digital SLR. Um, shortly thereafter, it was a Canon 30D. And um, I said, you know what? I really am getting back into photography. Um, I'm going to shoot some more. I'm going to get back into wedding photography, make a little bit of money, and buy some more gear. So I did that. And then, you know, I did that for about a year. I, I did a couple of weddings for free just to build it, rebuild my portfolio. And mm -hmm some weddings for friends and I have some horror stories on some of the free ones that I did. Um, and, uh, yeah, they were, uh, we, they were pretty rough, uh, because you know, people that want free wedding photography are generally not the ones investing in lavish weddings. So I, I got, I got to meet, shall we say some interesting people during that time. <laughs> that, and, that was uh, with digital or, or film? With digital, with digital. Right. Um, I so, saw, yeah, I, um, I, I, I hadn't. Sh I haven't shot a wedding uh, with purely on film since the nineties. Um, uh -huh. So anyway, I got uh, I got in back into shooting wedding photography, and you know, I guess uh, fortunately, I I, I was uh, I still I guess had the knack for it, and um, all of a sudden I went from shooting you know under ten weddings for the first year or so. And then, you know, I, I continued doing it for about uh, another eight or nine years after that. And I was I was working every weekend solid. And I was sh shooting. I, I had a, got a, a wedding photography business set up on the side. Um, and I was shooting, you know, 50, 60 weddings a year. Um, and, uh, and working full time. And then, you know, I had my son. And so I was like, well, okay, I, you know, something's got to... Uh, got to stop here so I started tearing down the weddings and I shot my last wedding um, somewhere I think in 2016 or something like that um, and, and through that you know I, I was work as a working professional photographer and I was also um, hired by one of the colleges um, close to me here which is actually one of the uh, leading art schools and photography schools in in, uh, in Canada in fact they they have such a the, their their animation program um, uh, Disney uh, hires uh, animation students directly from this college, so it's very, very renowned for its art. So I was honored to be offered a position teaching there. So I did that for a few years as well. So I was working full time. I was a, pro a professional photographer with a full schedule of wedding and portraiture work to do, and I was also teaching um, uh, wedding and portraiture photography at the college level. Um, and at the same time, I was also a volunteer uh, police officer, which we call an auxiliary police officer here. So I was putting in 12 hours a month doing that as well uh, for 10 years. So um, at some point, I said, you know what, enough is enough. 
Um, and you know, my wife was like, listen, uh, you know, you, you got to spend some time with your new son here. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I started pairing back a little bit and then, then, uh, you know, I, I, a few years back, I said to myself, you know, I'm losing the, you know, the passion that I have for photography because it's turned into a job. Um, and so I, uh, I hung up the, uh, the wedding business for a while and then that's when I started getting into film. So that's how I met Alex, Lu- Alex Laux from, uh, from the classic camera revival. Uh, we, I joined a local camera club and, and Alex and I hit it off and we started talking about film. I said, you know, yeah, I used to shoot film all the time. I was always in the dark room. I love film. I love the, the, every na- the, uh, the nature of it, every aspect of it. <clears throat> and so we got to talking and then, you know, all of a sudden, uh, I, you know, I went from, from about three digital cameras to one film camera. Now I have two digital cameras and about 50 film cameras. <laughs> <clears throat> and I'm sitting here in my suit, in my darkroom dungeon, and I'm looking, staring at five enlargers sitting on the counter here oh. and wondering. And, um, yeah. So, no, no turning back now, huh? I'm so far in the rabbit hole here. It's, uh, you know, I, if, I, I'm going to be dead and buried with all this stuff. But, um, <laughs> but that's how I met uh, the guys at the Classic Camera Revival was through Alex. And he's a, he's a great guy. He's, you know, he's, um, uh, he's very much uh, into uh, what's going on in the, uh, in the film photography world. And, um, you know, he's kind of a mover and shaker in there. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, they were, uh, you know, I said they were, I keep telling people they were hungry for talent and couldn't find any, so they asked me. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I guessed. I guessed uh, co-hosted uh, on a couple of their podcasts, and I had never podcasted before, and um, I've been doing it now with them for for two years, uh, and we've got quite a few personalities on that podcast. Kind of Alex is um, kind of the film photography geek, if you will. Like he knows all the the chemicals, and he's. You know, he's got so many um, film developing recipes. It's it's unreal. Uh, we, we have John John Meadows, who's a very mellow, like great podcaster. I love the way he delivers his uh, his podcasts, and um, he's a great guy. Bill Smith is a lovely guy as well. Like Bill Bill is primarily uh, a thirty five millimeter guy. He does shoot a little bit of uh, of uh, medium format. And he is also another one that he's up on so much. Uh, Bill knows camera equipment like you wouldn't believe. The guy's an encyclopedia. Um, <coughs> and then we have a few other po- folks come in. There's Mike and Donna, uh, who are a lot of fun. And then uh, uh, Mike and I, we kind of get a little bit stupid and crazy and make some off-color remarks a lot of the time and <laughs> like to have a little bit more fun on the podcast. And uh, there's Trevor Black who comes in and guests from time to time. He's a working photographer. So he's often quite busy uh, when we do our recording. So he doesn't always appear on every podcast, but he's also very knowledgeable as well. And uh, he is a a full, fully trained professional, like uh, degree in photography, um, was a a photojournalist before and is a working professional today. So he brings a lot of good um, of the uh, with film. Uh, no, he, he shoots primarily digital. Okay. <clears throat> when he was a photojournalist, he was doing that with film. So he was a working professional film photographer. Right. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. But you know what? Like a lot of, um, it's an interesting question that you raise because, uh, a lot of people, um, that are working professionals, you know, that shoot film and digital, you know, digital is, it's just so much more conducive to output these days because it's just, it's just quicker, you know? 
Uh, so it, I think it's, it's, it's rare that you find a pure like professional just doing film, but, um, they're out there. I just, you know, there's not in the numbers that there used to be, of course, but, um, you know, I guess uh, if you, if you can keep it sort of within the studio or, or for instance, that, that, that could yeah, be like, manageable. I mean, if it was purely portraiture, yeah. um, you know, and it was like sort of personalized, like I'm a big fan of a photographer called Platon. Um, and he's a portrait photographer and all he shoots is film. Yeah. And he's incredible. Like he's one of my favorite portraiture photographers, but, um, uh, more on him later, but, uh, yeah. So the way we do the podcast, we record, um, uh, every three months or so, and we record three at a time and the, uh, the whole gang, uh, um, I've been hosting a lot of them lately. So they come over to my house. We sit around like, I have a great big dining room table that I built. One of my other hobbies is woodworking. So I built this lovely table. And we sit around the table and we, we have a few uh, a few too many beers and a few too many scotches sometimes and some food that's not so good for the waistline. And uh, we we do our podcasts um, and we record it live. And uh, um, everyone uh, is uh, is basically sitting around the table. We all we're all mic'd up and we uh, we generally agree on all of our topics about um, a month or so in advance. We do whatever research we need to. We come prepared on what we're going to talk about, and uh, and then we just kind of go ahead and do it. Uh, John um, John's our sound engineer. He manages the whole recording, and then he does all the sound editing. And um, <coughs> Alex is really good at um, documenting all of the sh- all of the show notes and everything like that. And um, if you ever go to his blog, um, you'll see that how well he documents the uh, the podcast episode. So. Uh, um, that that's a big part of it as well too. I think um, people are very interested in in seeing some of the images from the cameras and things like that that we talk about. So, so it's a lot of fun. I really enjoy it. It's a great bunch of people, and um, you know, it, it's it's growing in popularity. I think we've uh, we're finally above thirty listeners. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, so it's it's sort of the the opposite of of the uh, the other film photography podcasts out out there. <laughs> where we sort of like like this one where where I, we we sort of find the time maybe yeah, the same of, day or maybe an hour before and and uh, but hey that's okay because you know what those are honest um you know uh instantaneous perspectives on things which are sometimes the most valuable i think so yeah nothing I, I really like that with 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 film photography podcasts uh because i i started listening to podcasts when i was driving from A to B and a four or five hours drive, and I needed uh, something for f- to listen to for four or five hours, and and yeah. uh, <clears throat> the the natural spontaneous conversation between two guys who are passionate about something they have in common, uh, you can suddenly our, the hours just fly by, and and uh, it's very interesting. I agree with you, hundred percent. But but not the not to diss the uh, the importance of being prepared because if you leave a lot of loose ends when you talk about stuff, uh, it can well, it can no come back and bite you in the ass later. <laughs> Very true, my friend. Very true. <laughs> and you know what? We're we're talking about um, about gear. And cameras, so you know it's very. We we need to research some stuff too. Like I mean, <clears throat> you know, you you can only. I have so many cameras 
and I'm very familiar and intimate with the ones that are constantly in the rotation that I shoot, which is only two or three cameras. And I have a bunch of other ones, but I don't shoot them that often. Um, and so, you know, you do have to sometimes prepare notes and, and do research and, and try to find interesting things that, you know, um, that the audience might want to hear about a particular camera. So, mm -hmm. I, uh, but you know, when it comes to photography in the art form, I, for me, I totally with you. Like, I just love to kind of just say what's in between my ears and what's in my heart about <laughs> how I feel about it. So cool. Well, um, I think we'll have a little break and, and, uh, pause the recording just to be safe. Uh, so we don't have a glitch. And then uh, we'll come back in a in a short while with with the next segment. Okay, we're back. And uh, for the last segment of of today's episode, I have a specific thing I wanted your opinion about, James, and, and that is I've been thinking about a lot about Fujifilm in, in the late latest of weeks um, because I noticed something. Uh, I follow Nick Carver. I don't know if you follow him too. Um, he's a, uh, a film photographer on YouTube with very very good videos i mean like quality quality to, stuff don't have to check that out nick carver yeah in in i think it's nick carver in, in one word on youtube and okay. it's it sort of it can go a month or two between the videos but it's so clearly that he spends his time with the videos and uh, that's great yeah it's Put just some good effort into it that's that's lovely that's wonderful that's what we need you know in this uh, to keep film photography going and to strengthen is we need to continually be doing high quality things with film to make sure people are interested so. yeah and he also he he's pretty it's it's not the first year he's into photography or film photography to to uh, put it like that he has some pretty sick gear with mm -hmm. some some six by 17 uh large format camera so not just oh, a back but a specific that's my, uh, six, what? my white weight that's my white whale, 617. <laughs> I do not have a 617, and I desperately want one, but I i can't stomach the cost. I own both uh, 6x17 back for for large format, and I also had the the G617 for a oh. period of time. Wow. But it was just crazy because, I mean, it, I, think, I think I paid $1,200, and then I sold it for 1500 but in, when I when I had it, uh, it was just it was I had to bring a suitcase every time I it, yeah. it was just and the images were gorgeous, but I had to 
I had to go to the vistas every time. I couldn't go to the sort of where I could find 10 or 15 shots on a walk because the first image would just get everything in. in the. So I'd have to turn 100 yeah. degrees, 180 degrees and do two shots and then drive for four hours to find new locations. So it was pretty tough. But yeah. okay, so anyway, I, I, I lost my thread there for a while. But the point was that he he uh he's a very prominent figure in the in the film photography business on youtube and and he posted on on his instagram that he was invited by fujifilm north america to speak at the photo plus expo 2018 in new york really? and he was going to give three three free seminars at the fujifilm booth and he says i'll be speaking about the joys of printing your work and shooting film blah 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 and when I saw that, I thought, that's mm-hmm. not very like Fuji to invite a Fuji film shooter to give three free lectures in, in October in New York. So I was wondering if that is an indication that maybe they are noticing this, the shift in the industry or if it's just a coincidence. What do you think? Well, hmm. I know what I'd like to think. Uh, I'd like to think that they are seeing a shift in the industry, but um, you know, I've worked in business a long time. I've been, I have a fairly robust business education and um, I, you know, I would, I would love it if Fuji were to bring some of these line, uh, you know, film production lines back on. Um, but I, I, you know what? I don't think, I don't think it's going to happen. Um, I think it's coincidental, unfortunately. I don't want it to be, but from a business person's perspective, uh, this is a dollars and cents decision from Fuji, and it's unfortunate. But, um, uh, you know, I think if you look at it, you know, in the 90s, you know, there's 6 billion people on the planet, right? Probably, let's say, 2 billion people owned film cameras in the 90s. Everyone had a film camera. Mm-hmm. Today, we have 6 billion people on the planet. Probably 4 billion have a cell phone that can take pictures. So it's a very difficult hill to climb to uh, to get that kind of market and that scalability that it's going to take for, for film, at film production at the scale in which Fuji needs it to be for them to consider it profitable. The market just isn't there, unfortunately. I think, and um, you know, ideally, like if there was, if there, you know what, you know what, might be a really cool um, uh, uh, business or opportunity would be if you could convince a film manufacturer to work in a sort of collective. Um, so let's say if you take Ferrania as an example. And then, you know, or, or even say, um, Agfa or Roly, like they are, like they already have functional up to date or Ilford, uh, you know, they have functional up to date, well run, efficient plants that just aren't producing volume. Right. <clears throat> so if there was a way for them to kind of work in a cooperative fashion, um, and then, you know, allowing manufacturers maybe to license the emulsions for the various films and have them processed by, say, one or two central uh, film manufacturers, that might be a good thing because we want variety. But the problem is, 
the only way you're going to get variety with film is if you have the scalability of, of market. Yeah. And, and that is, that's the biggest challenge, right? Like there's just, you know, yes, it's grown in popularity. There's a lot of niche players. There's a lot of cool things coming out, you know, but in the grand scheme of things, film, unfortunately is still somewhat of a cottage industry, you know, I mean, it's not a cottage industry per se, but, um, but when you look at it in, in the in the in totality of how much film is being produced versus how many digital cameras and digital sensors are being produced, you know, film is 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 still somewhat of a cottage industry, um, although it's growing. But you know, right. uh, film manufacturers have a really good opportunity if they could come to terms and create some type of film cooperative, lower the cost of manufacturing because it's all centralized, work together to create new emulsions. Um, and then share in that profit, uh, because that, I think, would help grow the popularity and increase market. Because a lot of the times, if you want to, what I'm finding is a lot of people that are brand new to film um, are, they have no idea where to start. You know, you, there's not like a, you know, when we, when I was growing up, there were photo labs on every corner. There was photo mats, a half an hour you have your prints and you can see the whole process. You could see the big, the auto labs creating and uh, the images and, uh, and, and developing all the film and that sort of thing. <clears throat> we don't have that today. So there's, there's a lot of, uh, of lack of awareness uh, today. And, and we really need to focus on, on, on increasing that awareness. And so, you know, I think it's a good thing that Fuji is getting a notable mover and shaker in the film industry to, uh, to speak and talk and perhaps, uh, uh, you know, gain some, uh, increase some interest in film. You know, Fuji has committed to Instax. Um, and, uh, you know, I think they see that as, as, uh, um, as a viable, uh, business opportunity. And I think one of the big drivers behind that, why they're, why they're pursuing Instax is because digital has created the sense of instant gratification in the world. You know, it's, uh, and, and if, and you don't get that with traditional, um, analog photography, it's a process, um, and it's a process that requires patience. And I think there's a lot of value in, in making sure that that tradition never dies because we need to become, we need to revisit our, um, our sense of being patient in the world because when you're impatient, you don't tolerate other people, you judge other people, and you constantly look through the world through your own lens because you're just looking for that gratification, whereas film is something that tempers all of that, I believe, and it, it, it helps you work better to understand what it is, what is surrounding you, observe more, and then, you know, it reduces, you know, and I know this is somewhat perhaps um, a bit of a Pollyanna kind of thing, but... Uh, um, <coughs> you know what, if we can slow down, if we can observe more, if we can appreciate our surroundings, and that includes people in our surroundings, um, you know, we, we lower the amount of, uh, of judgment that we place on others because we seek first to understand who people are. Um, and that's why I really love portrait photography as well, too, because I really want to understand who someone is. But, uh, you know, that's kind of getting off on a tangent. But to sum it up, yeah, I wish it was more. I wish this really was an indication of Fuji, um, 
you know, lighting up some more of those lines of uh, film production lines. But my, my gut tells me I don't think it is, unfortunately. And gosh, I trust me, I want it to be because I have about um, 200 rolls of Acros that I've, uh, it's my absolute favorite film. And I've hoarded it. And when it's gone, I'm going to be very, very sad. But uh, I love that film. And um, yeah, I, I really wish they would uh, bring it back and bring some of these films back online. Um, even if you look at Kodak, like Kodak's brought back Actichrome, which is great. Um, <clears throat> they brought, you know, they put brought back uh, T-Max 3200. Um, also incredible. But, you know, I want them to bring back... Uh, Plus X, and I want them to bring at, bring back Tech Pan and uh, <laughs> and Comic X. I want all of those films back. But I mean, in yeah. reality, um, you know, the film community <coughs> might be a million photographers. Yeah, you know, well, which is what one sixtieth of the planet, I guess. Well, I I um, I heard that the first batch of of Ectochrome uh, uh, was was around 10,000 rolls that mm -hmm. got sold almost immediately. Yeah. And uh, I was wondering if if that release were in 2012 how long would have it taken to sold sold those 10,000 rolls. Uh Yeah. I, my point is just that I think I think it's it's a wave that is heading a a, a direction and People that come into film these days don't go directly to film. They go via digital. So yeah. if there is a digital shooter going from digital to film, then digital has lost one client if, yeah. to film. And if you're Fuji or Canon or whatever, that client may might be gone forever because he found his passion in film. But Fuji is has a leg in both worlds and and can still get money okay. from from both sides of the aisle or and and also I was thinking with the um with the uh, super sense and the resurrection of pack film yeah uh, I was thinking what happens when they nail it what happens when they get a perfect product uh that rivals the FP100C what happens in on, on that those Fuji boardrooms where it's they can well, just push a button and then they go back into business and and they can knock out SuperSense uh, in a, in a few well, months. Here's here's one of the you know things that we really need to look at as well too is uh, and the, all these things are great all these initiatives all these new launches that's amazing. What we need in an, in, in the industry is to is a manufacturer to manufacture a reliable, uh, good quality, doesn't have to be top of line, but good quality film SLR that can make it into camera stores at a price point where people can buy them and learn about them. The challenge that we have, why film will stagnate, is because no new film cameras in mass production are being made today. Mm -hmm. And so if people can't buy a camera, like if, if you're, if you're going, if you're interested in photography, you're going to go to your local camera shop that has no film photography, no film cameras on the shelf other than say a Fuji Instax, right? There's no 
F2, Nikon F2, F3. There's no, uh, you know, I mean, yeah, you could perhaps buy a, a Leica M7, but no, no person entering the photography world unless you're, you know, ridiculously rich, <laughs> you know, is going to do that. So, you know, until we get that and we and we start educating people when they're looking to get into photography that there is another option besides digital, you know, we really need that for film to really to really grow. So, you know, if we think that let's say there's uh, a million film photographers and, you know, perhaps there's, um, you know, five million working film cameras out there um, today, uh, but the only way you can get them is through the secondhand market or through eBay, it's very difficult to get people educated on, on, on what to do with it. So I think, uh, or how to get into it. So I think it's really great that Fuji is, uh, is, has asked this, um, was it, sorry, was it Sean Carver? Was that what it was? Nick Carver. Nick Car so, sorry, sorry, Nick, uh, Nick <laughs> no, Carver. He don't uh, listen to my show. That Don't worry. <laughs> he better now, now that we're giving him all these plugs. Uh, but, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, that's great that they've, that they've got a notable figure talking about it because, you know, until it's in the, at the grassroots kind of at the camera shop level, um, it's going to be difficult to, uh, for people to, to get to know how to get into it, how to do it. Uh, you know, I saw recently that, uh, Ilford has put together a starter pack of chemicals. I think, I think that's terrific. It's a terrific idea. Yeah. You know, because it's, you can go and, you know, oh, you know what? I want to try this. I've all, I've heard a lot about, it. I want to try it. Okay. I don't have to go, you know, buy a bottle of, uh, of, of Rodinol and a big, you know, one gallon jug of fixer and stop bath. And what am I going to do with all this stuff if I don't like it? You know, and how, I don't know what, what to do. Like, I don't know, you know, do I buy this developer? Do I buy that developer? People that have been shooting film for three or four years are, I'm constantly asked, well, what recipe? I'm like, look, <laughs> I, I use a ton of developers just to play around with, but I have my one or two developers that is for my work. Yeah. You know, like, don't, you know, like you're going to drive yourself bananas trying this, that, and the other thing for your actual work. So um, you know, I have a lot of developers that I buy to test and play around with. And then if I find qualities of that that I like, then I, I work that into my into my rotation. Like I, uh, you know, I generally, <coughs> I stick with HC110 and TMAX uh, developers. And, uh, and, you know, I do, you know, if I'm, if I'm doing some big pushes and things like that, I have other developers that I'll go to. But, you know, generally, I try to, you know, narrow down my chemicals because that's how you achieve consistency. So, do, do um, you use the Tmax for Acros? Uh, no, actually, for Acros, I use uh, I use Microfen. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that's 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 pretty <coughs> pretty interesting about developing because that that that's sort of I've, I've been thinking about those poor labs around the the world. That must be the sort of this the last thing that gets a resurgence is the labs uh unless of course they can no new ones pop up and so they get yeah. the increase in business uh, but if they get heavy competition the 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 customers will just spread out and and you will still struggle but so That's i i think true. the i think the the home developing f uh customer is going to take over the market in, in the film industry so so new new film shooters will go pretty pretty fast onto developing home at home of course yeah because i mean you know no one's gonna want to 
you know, film is, is more expensive too. Um, yeah. you know, film is, uh, uh, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, that's sort of a, uh, it's like gasoline in your car, you know, like it, yeah. you, you limited use of it. And every time you want to take more pictures, you got to, got to plunk out $10 and, and sometimes $20 for developing. So that's, that's, that's a tough thing to get, uh, people to get their heads wrapped around when, you know, one of the nicer selling points or more attractive selling points of digital is you buy it once and you buy your card and you reuse it over and over again. And every time you push the button, it costs you nothing but your time. Yeah. Of course, it doesn't necessarily make you a better photographer either, but, uh, but, I, um, I think that you know, especially for countries like, like Norway, where we don't have a, a single E6 developing place left. So yeah. for all those film shooters in Norway, there's not all that many, but a couple of thousand maybe. Yeah. Every one of those has to do home developing E6. And, yeah. and if you do E6, you do all the rest. That's, oh, sure. that's sort I mean, of the last yeah. thing. So, And if, course, if yeah. you send out E6, you send it to the UK or to... Germany or whatever, and I I wonder how how many clients the the UK's uh, darkroom darkroom dot com or or I don't know if that's the the proper name, but yeah. how many clients from from Norway and Sweden and Denmark are are in their Shipping. portfolio? So yeah. I think it's pretty yeah, hefty. Yeah, I would think so. I mean, there's no there's very few options out there for processing and. Um, you know, look, I I don't think film will die. That's I want to be very clear about that. I don't think it's going to die, but mm-hmm. um, or it's not going to die anytime soon. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's 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 quite a challenging road ahead to bring it back to you know even say twenty percent of the popularity or you know the the market share that it had in the nineties. You know, yeah, uh, I th- I think that's probably the biggest difference is that it will never die because the all the the artists will almost always prefer film in, yeah. in my head it's very blunt speaking but 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 the general masses will prefer digital um and so that was the case for me at least uh, when i did digital i felt like photoshop was creating my images and it's almost it's almost like uh, trying to sell a print that you bought on ikea you you can't just market that as your own. <laughs> yeah. So that was sort of what I felt when I was pricing my work. I felt like this is Adobe's work. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I can't charge money for this. But when 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 I shoot film and try to sell something, even maybe I even pr- print it in in the dark room. Uh, that's that's me from from A to Z. That there's no yeah. one else involved and. And uh, so I have no issues with charging whatever I feel I need to charge for for those types of artwork. So, right. so that's that's my hunch that if I felt that when I started with digital, I bet a lot of people st- feel the same way. But I, of course, I still shoot sure. digital for work when yeah. uh, when I'm shooting passport photos or or a soccer game or uh, when when the newspaper calls and tells me that. Some dude has died on the on the steps of his house, and cops are everywhere. And I I need to go there. I'm not gonna yeah. bring my my F100. No. no, you're not gonna you're not gonna go and shoot film and then go home, develop it, wait for it to dry, scan it, and then email it to the newspaper. 
Because your, your competitor who's going to be like, boom, 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 a few minutes in Photoshop or Lightroom, you know, upload, okay, I'm done. Yeah, not even that. I, I, I stopped using Lightroom and Photoshop for my uh, sport and my news. I just do everything on the phone. So straight from the D500 up on my phone and then through um, Snapseed and then send. Yeah. So it's pretty... But I wish I could... I, I constantly try to think of new ways to incorporate film into my work uh, life. Uh, so, for instance, this year I'm 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 determined I'm going to do a, a family Christmas photo on large format, and I'm going do to it. print it in the darkroom on um, on these uh, postcards, these RC paper postcards that that oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Andrew Barton got me. Oh, did he? Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, he, well, they don't sell it here, so I had to. I had to find my uh, through my secret dealer in in the UK. <laughs> I know Ilford used to make those years ago. Are they? Uh, did he make those up himself? Or no, that's a, he's got that's the same. Course? Yeah, that's Ilford post. Oh, the Ilford one. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to do that, and then, and then I'm going to send them out, and and sort of and ho- hoping that the word might spread, and and the I can sort of uh, do adverts for for the the one family photo instead of the 200 versions of the same photo and well here's something uh here's something you want to sell something this is what i used to do i would create i would i would uh, go to an i have had you know album manufacturers that i would deal with and i would buy an album i've called it like a, a lovely like a handmade like you know made in italy leather beautiful album and it would have uh, 18 pages in it. So what I would say to the families is we will do a family photo once a year for the next 18 years with your kids, and then we'll insert this and we'll fill the album up over 18 years. <laughs> cool. That way they only want one image. Oh, that's smart. Right? And they, you have a repeat customer. That would be pretty cool. I think you could do the same for families. You could do well, one, one yeah. family picture every year. Exactly. And, it doesn't have to be 18 years. You could do it for five years or whatever. And you'd say, let's create a chronology of your family. Because, you know, I always say, I when I was teaching photography, I would always say, you know, photography matters basically at three types of events in, in your life. It'll be when there's a birth, when there's a death, and when there's a wedding. Yeah. That's when people pull out the family photo album and reminisce mm-hmm. and think about the past and look to the future. And that is why photography is so important because it freezes those loved ones in that moment in time. And if you can help them create that, and it's really important to articulate to customers the value of photography and why you should be getting professional photography done as opposed to just going to some guy down the street or you know your your cousin who just bought a you know a, a brand new uh, Nikon D850 or something and that has no idea how to use it yeah <clears throat> so you know if you can do that and then they have something tangible they don't you're not giving them you say yeah you can have the file but it's not about the file it's about this book and it's about yeah in this book with the memories and and i also i also wanted to 
not take advantage that's that's the wrong term but i think a lot of uh my age like in the in sort of in the 30s and 40s uh who have this uh, been through a lot of technology since around the 2000s and and know they had a disc man and they had a a walkie oh, yeah. talkie no not walkie talkie but <laughs> a yeah, walkman what you mean? a walk yeah so, so when they right now they have like i had a, a talk with a friend and he had 800 some images on his phone and i and i started asking questions i said well what happens if you if you swap your phone can you can you transfer all the images what happens if you if you want to print uh, an image how do you transfer the files to 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 the computers do you know the resolution do you know how big it can be and blah 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 and and that sort of i i saw that that sort of made some something pop in his head uh, where he understood that this was kind of risky they had three kids and and uh, that was all the photos they had of the the three kids was those 800 shots on that phone and if it dropped it in the toilet those are gone and that's yeah. sort of if i think that the the general public is sort of realizing stuff that you put on your external hard drive two years ago when you plug that USB in today, may not, you you sort of hold your breath. <laughs> so, well, there's digital dust, and you know it's they just gone, and like these things break, and you know, like everything, nothing, you know, they're they're actually affected by cosmic rays and radiation. These hard drives, and um, yeah, you know, people don't realize that um, you know if you don't have something to physically touch, you can't really protect it. Yeah. And I think more and more people are are thinking along those lines, and they are thinking about cloud backup, and they are thinking about which sort of is a is a good first oh, move, sure. absolutely. Yeah. But the idea of having one uh, large format family photo a year, uh, or once in a while with maybe grandparents and and everyone that will outlast everyone in the photo. Uh, just as, the same way as I can look through my grandfather's uh, albums and see images from before the war and uh, as clear as it was taken yesterday. Um, that's sort of, that's what I want to tap into that market. That's not, not for the money. Uh, I don't almost don't care about the money, but the thought of leaving those families with, with an, with an image that, I know will out outlast all of them uh, unless there's a fire, of course. But yeah. that would be pretty special. I completely agree with you. And you know, it's important when you're taking those photos with that family, make it a memorable experience. Because when they look at that photo, what I when I was uh, when I when I'm working with clients, I want them when they look at that photo to remember the experience of when we took that photo. Right, because that's what will bring them back to you as a professional that they want to take the next photo. Oh, that's a good point. I didn't think about that. Mm -hmm. Well, sir, I have one last question because today Absolutely. I I found out that my my sister is engaged. Oh, awesome! And uh, I've never I've I've shot one wedding uh, a mm -hmm. few years ago where I I was I was uh, thinking about marketing myself as a wedding photographer and so i shot a, a, a wedding for someone i knew uh and i asked only for like 100 200 dollars just to yeah. break even 
Yeah. And it was all digital. It was no film. Uh, yeah. And I sort of hated it. Um, <laughs> it's not for everybody. <laughs> well, I'll tell you that's definite. <laughs> well, they they already had a, a wedding photographer, but they they booked the wedding photographer only for up until the church and and not the party afterwards. So I was there from uh, afternoon and all the way till one one o'clock in the in the night or two o'clock in the night. And uh, I was trying to document everything, and I sort of got the, the I sort of understood how everything is supposed to work, and and uh, the the importance of a, a second shooter or or someone who can, yeah. if you're on the wrong side of the of the um, of the um, room and everyone stands up and starts applauding, you can't just run to the other side suddenly and disturb everyone. So. Those sort of things were I was thinking about, but if I'm going to do this now, maybe next year, I'm going to do everything on film. And I, I wanted to ask you just a few pointers on not to. I'm not going to take it super seriously. I'm going to explain that I'm I'm doing this for free and I'm I, this is for fun. And so I was thinking, um, do you ever push when you shoot weddings? Um, or are you afraid of, of, uh, the increased contrast and, oh gosh, no, no, it's fine. That's fine. Uh, Portra, Portra 400. You can, you can abuse the snot out of Portra 400. <laughs> did you, did you only shoot color or did you, did the clients like black and white shots or did they, oh yeah, did they, both, yeah, you know, did they ask for uh, color shots to be in black and white, et cetera, or vice versa? Uh, I noticed, well, in the eighties, most of them wanted color. Right. So there's very little desire for black and white in the 80s. As the 90s, as I pushed into the early to mid 90s, there seemed to be more of a trend for black and white. I think today most people want black and white images. And I think today people want to be set, they want something to set their wedding apart. So, it, it, you know, it's kind of, uh, especially with kind of the hipster generation, the millennial generation today. Uh, at least in North America, I find that if they can find something that differentiates themselves and they like to, um, you know, they, they are one of the, they're one of the, you know, they really have taken to film photography as well, that, that, uh, that generation. So, um, I think there's a big push for, uh, for, uh, for black and white film. Um, I've seen some incredible work with infrared, uh, film, uh, with black and white, um, uh, with Kodak HIE, which actually isn't really infrared, but um, there's been I've seen some incredible work uh, with that. Um, yeah, That's and uh, like, well, with the with the dress, the white dress glowing and everything like that. Mm -hmm. um, if you, you you know what, you just you can't find HIE anymore, so. So that's kind of uh, awesome. That well, that that's a cool idea, at least. So. Yeah, well, but I would, um, you know, in terms of pointers, um, you know, it's you have to really, you have to explain the value proposition to the clients. You know, why? What is the value of shooting your wedding in film? Um, what will be different than say what your friends' weddings might have been like shooting in digital? So you know what we're not. I'm not going to give you 500 images for you to thumb through. You're going to get, you know, maybe 60 or 70 images that are all going to be finished, lovely, well thought out, well composed. You know, mm -hmm. 
uh, images that really are centered around the emotion of the day. <clears throat> and I really think that um, when it comes to photographing people, the medium is less relevant than the experience. So if you're going to do this, be looking for, especially with film, film is going to require you to anticipate the moment before it actually happens. And it's a, it's a, it's a lot more difficult in that you require more concentration. Um, you need to know um, kind of how most weddings are going to, are going to happen um, <clears throat> in terms of the, uh, like the procedural aspect of it. So you can anticipate what's going to happen next. I always explain this to people that it's not about photographing the moment that is magical. It's about the moment before the moment. So you think about two people kissing. What is the climax, the most important, most poignant moment of that whole in engagement of the two people kissing? To me, it's not the kiss. It's just before the kiss, just before the lips touch. That is when people, it's, that's the peak of of romance and anticipation. So those are the things you need to be looking out for. You know, mm -hmm. just when, when, when the, when the, uh, the, uh, bride is, you know, just extending her arm to, to have her, her dance with her dad, you know, those are the little moments you, you know, you don't necessarily, the, the dance itself, that's all academic. Yes, you're going to get that. But it's those moments of when the hand reaches out, when the dad looks into her, his daughter's eyes for the, you know, mm -hmm. last moment before, you know, she's off and, and, and married, <coughs> et cetera. That's, that's very, that's very true. I, I, I wouldn't have thought of that. Or I, as a, as a sports photographer, I would have seen it and I would have recognized it as, as a moment I should have catch, captured. <laughs> that's that's that, well, that's, that's a lot of sports. that's a lot of what I do when I shoot sports. Is that oh damn? I... Well, yeah, well, you have to <laughs> like I mean, if you're a sports photographer, you're always anticipating. Yeah, wedding photography is very similar. I I often also just find myself just watching the game. And suddenly they score, and I was just like, "Ah, oh, great!" And then, oh, I'm <laughs> working. But um, w one other question about weddings. Uh, right now, I don't have a a sort of a a six four five sort of quick solution camera. Mm -hmm. um, is that something to be considered, or is it? I mean, I'm not thinking about the shooting, but I'm thinking about the loading, the load time in between. Um, shouldn't I complicate things by buying new stuff, or should I justify? What do you have? Uh, well, I I have a Panicon six, and I have okay. a I have a Bronica six by uh, SQ, but it's up for sale, and I think that will go before the wedding. And but I have a an F4 and F100, and uh, And did you want to shoot primarily medium format? Yeah, I I suspect that uh, most of the medium format images will be used, but but so the the thirty five will be sort of like a, a quick the reportage kind of stuff for the reception and yeah that sort of thing. and and for yeah. for uh, for whenever I have to use a flash maybe or or set up some sort of um, scenario because that's what I'm used to that's why the the Nikon's is what I'm used to when I when I shoot flash and in the studio and stuff so but uh, well, the it, the Panacon is the loading uh, I don't know 
it's it, it would be difficult i you know to not have a uh, a medium format without an interchangeable back mm. um because while the camera's being loaded you can't be shooting it um so you know uh that would be a, a challenge logistically so um yeah. the the bronica sq is an sqa that you have or something yeah it's an sqam so it's it's sort of uh, not an, an option anyway because it's so loud yeah, it's an integrated back right like it's just a cartridge that pops in and out i believe no, it's a separate back but the it's a okay. it's an integrated motor grip so it's there's no option of not having the motor grip okay and and why why would the motor grip cause you challenges no it's just the the loudness of it oh it's, well <clears throat> i wouldn't worry it about sounds that. like you're when you, the first go at starting your mow lawn, uh, lawnmower it's is it that it's loud sort really? of sort of those ranges <laughs> okay but i i i don't re- i i never shot one so i don't remember how loud <laughs> it is but uh, um yeah i suppose that would you know uh that would that would be a challenge 645 is probably the most well suited for uh, a format for weddings because you can get you know 15 16 images on a 120 roll um you know, a lot of guys, uh, they used to shoot the Mamiya system. Um, I, uh, I, uh, never, I, I liked Mamiya, um, the, their, their glass and everything, but I did find Mamiya glass to be a touch more contrasty for softer portrait work. But, um, <clears throat> you know, a Mamiya 645, if you can find a good, uh, a, a, a at a good price. Um, how important is the, the the fastest shutter speed like it, it can you get away with a thousand or should you uh, probably have a yeah. little bit more no you can get away with a thousand those lenses can be like if you're doing for the, like the formals and that sort of thing um and plus like so are you uh, um like the typical norwegian wedding is it indoors outdoors or a mix or it's almost always indoors uh but I don't know. It's sort the the typical thing in, in Norway is that uh, the w- this everything starts in the church. Mm-hmm. That's where everyone gathers, and then they everyone travels from the church to the venue. Yeah. So same same here. Similar similar to North American okay. weddings. Then um, you don't necessarily unless you're shooting out in the middle of the day and you are looking for really soft, like you know, wide open portraits, like you know. 2.8 or lower um, uh, apertures. Uh, I think a, thou- a thousandth of a second is more than fine. Like I don't think uh, you know, unless you're shooting bright sun. But you can always close down the uh, apertures too, so yeah. it gets lower film. Do, do you do you find it to be a risk to open up or no, not at all. Oh, okay. I mean, it depends on the system that you're yeah that you're using, the quality of the lenses, but. Um, uh, no, I don't like. I shot a lot with uh, with the Hasselblad 500C when I when I was doing it with film, and uh, those were all uh, like the fastest lens. The 80 was 2.8, and then I had a 150, and uh, and that's an f4 lens, and uh, you know that was kind of the kit. Um, so yeah, and like well, the Hassi too. Like the Hassi's only 500 uh, uh, yeah. shutter speed. So, um, no, I mean, I don't think you really like for weddings, you know, you're not really freezing action, you know, it's not like sports. So, 
a thousand a thousand is totally fine like i don't i I wouldn't see any issue with that shutter speed at all is there any scenario (laughs) where sort of you just the the medium format just gets put put in the bag there's there's no use for for that with with those type of scenarios or for for the ceremony for the church ceremony and your formals i would suggest would be all if not most if not all medium format um, but for the reception and the reportage that you're going to do would be all 35 millimeter. Like, I mean, it's just, it's either medium formats are, you know, in fast moving scenarios are difficult to focus. They're big, they're clunky. Um, you know, yeah. you know, you're, you're looking through either a waist level finder or, a, or, a, a prism finder where you had this big box up to your head. Like, you know, it's not conducive to, to a reportage type of style. I don't think. Um, right, and and how, and if you if you follow sort of your recipe you laid out right now, mm-hmm. how, how many rolls of of medium format do you think, or would you expect? Uh, when I was doing it in film, uh, like the average was um, uh, like five one twenty rolls, um, and uh, you know uh, three or three to five um, uh, uh, thirty five one thirty sixes for the. Uh, for the repertoire stuff. So, okay. uh, you know, like, a, you know, you're looking at, um, like generally shooting, um, you know, a, around, you know, 80 to a hundred yeah. medium format images and, uh, and, you know, 80 to a hundred 35 millimeter images. And how, how many, how, how big percentage of the medium formats were, were keepers compared to the 35? Well, back in those days, like your typical wedding album was uh, thirty pages, <laughs> so thirty. <laughs> well, cool. I mean, yeah, and like we we would never we would we would sell you the negatives for an extra thousand bucks, but um, yeah, because I mean, it was really you made your money on the album and the print sales back then, right? Right. Yeah. So you know, like generally, you're looking um, depending on how you know, like like the 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 bride and groom album was about 30 pages and then you had like a 10 or 20 page, uh, uh, album for, for the, uh, for the bride and groom. Uh, but the thing with film back then was we weren't, we weren't making composites of images. Like we weren't making layouts and things like that, that we do today. So it's like one page, one image, right? Mm -hmm. Um, whereas today, you know, you do like a, uh, uh, a, uh, a wedding album today, a seamless uh, uh, wedding album uh, with a with a full you know ed, full flat mount. Like you're you're creating a big layout um, where it's uh, you know you're putting sometimes you know ten twelve images on one layout. Yeah, and you do that thirty forty pages. All of a sudden, you end up with uh, you know eighty ninety images in the <laughs> wedding album today versus the thirty from say twenty thirty years ago. Right, but it's a difference. So you really have to explain that these are going to be the most important images of the day. Yeah, that you know, mm-hmm. and if you really think about it, there isn't more than thirty meaningful moments in a wedding. The rest of it's just, it's just rinse and repeat, right? Like it's uh, you know, like there's really only one kiss. There's uh, there's the bride, the walking down the aisle. The, well, there's a prof- the processional. The exchange of the vows, the the rings being exchanged, the kiss, the recessional. Uh, then you have your family formals, etc. And kind of that's it. 
and then you have your key dances at the reception, the bouquet toss maybe, and the cake cutting. Like there isn't really more than 30 traditional meaningful elements to a wedding. The rest of it is all reportage. Yeah, how, how much, how much uh, like pictures of uh, children running around and uh, <coughs> maybe the, yeah. the, the in-laws talking to each other outside the... Uh, on a break or, or how many of those images would you include in the mix? None, none of them or in today's world or back then? No, I'm thinking today maybe. Oh yeah. All of it. like, you know, like, I mean, you know, my typical delivery in today's world would be about uh 300 images, right? Three to three to 500, like a big full 14 hour wedding with two or three myself and two other photographers, you know, they're into five or 600 images sometimes. But it really gets diluted, and I don't like it because, yeah. you know, the images I want them to pay attention to, they're they're an overload, right? They're they're they've seen so much; it's tiring, it's exhausting. That just seems to lose its impact. But, you know, and the challenge there is is we're always we you know sometimes the tail wags the dog, you know, and the clients are saying, well, I I for my money I want to have quantity is quality, and that's yeah. not that's not true when it comes to photography. It's quality is quality and you can't create those moments. You can only capture them. That's true. You know, and, and, you know, people, they, you have to be very honest with them because they see these Hollywood weddings and these socialite weddings and things and they see these amazing photography and stuff, but they have, these guys have a 20 photographers following them around all night. Yeah. And there's probably 3000 images that got filtered through by the professionals to say, here you go. Here's your 50 amazing, incredible images. But the average person doesn't have a wedding like that. Yeah, they they probably stage a lot too, don't you think? For the, oh, for the important shots yeah. that goes out to the oh, magazines. Sure. And... Yeah. and it's different clientele. Like You have Hollywood people who really appreciate the value of their image. So they're very much in tune. So they understand a little bit more yeah. than, say, your average who just thinks I'm incredible and you <laughs> photographer must make me look gorgeous yeah. all the time you know can can and you imagine like, how 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 sad it must be to sit in today in in 2018 and you got married in in around 2008 and all you have is a as a is a CD yeah i know <laughs> Man, what you, you can't find anything that runs a CD anymore it's just gone. So you have to you have to Google search a specialist that can transfer information from a CD over to whatever a DVD or a disc or a, a memory stick or absolutely <laughs> no. I mean, fil film is is the new uh, shit. Yeah, it's the yeah. That's... What what is old is new again. <laughs> well. I have to say, this has been a very interesting conversation with you, James. And it's been wonderful. I really enjoy chatting with you, Spencer. I, I, uh, I think this probably won't be the last time uh, I have you on the show. Hopefully, oh, I, if if the feeling is mutual, I am. It's definitely mutual. I would anytime you uh, are looking for some low grade, low cost talent, <laughs> you'd let me know. <laughs> well, that's great. Well, uh, I think we'll have to end it here and. Uh, until next episode, uh, I'll catch you later.